So we are, uh, we're starting a new series this morning, and this is going to take us uh, from now until August, when we start small groups up again and all that kind of stuff, I guess the beginning of September. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the questions that God asks in Scripture. So I want to start by asking you a question. Do you have any friends in your life who are good question askers? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Uh, and when, you, when you're with a friend who's, a good, who's good at asking you questions, right? Uh, at least this is true for me. I always walk away from those conversations and I feel really cared for. Because when they're asking questions, right, that those questions are more than about receiving information, they're about connection. And when I'm with a friend who's really good at asking questions, I often walk away and find out I've learned more about myself in the process, right? And this is different from the way that sometimes I talk to people at work. Like, I'll be at work, and uh, when I'm like, I don't know if you guys ever get like this, like you're in the work zone, you know? And like someone walks across your field of vision who you need something from, and like rather than a hi or a hello or a how are you, it's like, hey! And it's just straight to the work question, right? Maybe no one else ever does that. I do that sometimes, and I have to stop myself. I'm like, well, okay, hold on, you're a person. Uh, but what I'm doing there is I'm looking for information. And so my questions can also just be informational. So what is happening when God asks a question? Because God doesn't need new information, does he? Okay, remember. No, okay, right, remember, this can be interactive, guys, okay? Just feel free to answer back. When I, if, I, if I don't want you to answer, I'll tell you. Uh, I don't need new information, but I do need some encouragement that you're awake, so that's what the questions are for. Okay. So when God asks a question, right, he's not looking for new information, because he's God. He knows everything. So when God asks a question, what he's doing, he's doing what a, what a good friend does. He's looking uh, to connect. That God in his questions is drawing us toward himself. And like questions from a good friend, the questions that God asks also help us know ourselves. Because it's really hard to connect with other people if we don't know where we are, right? Right? And so God's questions, they draw us toward him and they also help us know ourselves better. And in doing that, we know God better because his questions reveal his character. So that's what we're gonna be looking at as we, as we study these questions that God asks. We're gonna be learning about God's character. We're gonna be learning about ourselves and we're trusting that those questions are gonna draw us deeper into connection with him. And this morning, we're going all the way back and we're starting at the beginning in Genesis 3 when God asks his very first question. What we're going to see is that God, in his grace, exposes our need. And then we're going to see how God, with his grace, meets us in our need. So I'm going to go ahead and invite Lindsay Anderson to come up. Lindsay is going to read our passage for us this morning. I'm already tired of how much I've heard my voice. So we're going to have someone else uh, read our passage. And Lindsay, I think, starting at 1, Genesis 3-1, Genesis 1-1, no, 3-1, and going through verse 21. Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks. Can we give a, can we give a round of applause for Lindsay? Because that was a lot of words, so thanks. Uh, pray with me. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are are thankful that you um, communicate to us in story, God, and through, uh, through the stories of your word. I ask that you would speak truth to us this morning, that you would be exposing our own need, Lord, so that we can experience, so we can experience you uh, meeting us in our need. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm gonna just orient us a little bit to where we are uh, in the Bible, right? Uh, the page that we are on is probably one page into your Bible. So we're right at the beginning of the story, right? And I just wanna remind you what has happened in this first page of the story. So what we see in the very opening of scripture is that God is the king of the universe. He's the only thing there when there's nothing else. And that by the word of his power, God speaks the world into existence. And then there's this unfolding of creation. And that what's, what God is doing is God as as, as king is establishing his kingdom. He's creating the spaces in which the kingdom will unfold and then he's filling those spaces with birds and with plants and with animals. 
And then on the seventh day, God rests. And when the, the picture there is, God, is of God being enthroned in the heavens. That God has set up his kingdom, and on the seventh day, God rests and rules over the world. But then in Genesis 2, the story zooms in a little bit, and it talks about specifically Adam and Eve and, the, and their creation. And what we learn in Genesis 2 is that God has created man and woman to reign under him. That God is king, yes, but that he's created humans to, to be his expressions of that reign on the earth that he has created. That they're his vice regents, they're kings and queens. And that God gives them blessings. And, he's, and he gives them a calling and he says, I want you to go up into this world, I want you to fill it, I want you to multiply. And I want you to subdue this earth, I want you to have dominion over it. And not dominion in a way that uh, is bad for creation, that's often how we think of the word dominion, but in a way that stewards creation to be all that God intended it to be. And that as God's image bears then, man and woman were to represent God's rule and reign on the earth. And what God did with Adam and Eve is he made a covenant with them. He made a, a contract that was expressed in relationship. And that covenant had all the things that you would expect in a covenant. It had uh, blessings. It had calling. It had uh, what's, what scripture often calls stipulations, right? And the stipulation that God attached to this covenant, right? He told Adam and Eve, like we've talked about, I'm going to bless you. I have a calling for you. And I, I'm going to give you this command. I don't, I'm going to ask you to not eat from this tree. This all flows, again, from Adam and Eve and their relationship with God. But what we read about here in Genesis 3 is that uh, that relationship gets broken. But in the midst of this calling, this beautiful calling that God had given Adam and Eve, that what they choose to do is to transgress the stipulation of the covenant. That of their own free choice, our first parents violated God's covenant. That was a tragic thing. And then what we read is that God shows up. And that when God shows up, he does something very unexpected. He asks Adam and Eve a question. He asks them in verse 8, excuse me, he asks them in verse 9, where are you? Guys, this is not what Adam and Eve expected to happen, right? And we're going to kind of step to the side for a second. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background in the ancient Near East about what a covenant was, right? So this is going to help us understand Adam and Eve's reaction to God, their fear of God. So the ways that, uh, that covenants would often work kind of in the culture that this, that this story uh, was, trans was transmitted in is that a king who, a conquering king would come to a kingdom. He would conquer that kingdom. But what he knew is that he would not be able to rule that kingdom directly. Right? It's the ancient world, so communication is a struggle and distances are a big problem. And so what the king would do is he would set up a king under him, a vassal king. And that king owed his loyalty to the, to the king that was above him. And the, the vassal king would make promises. He would say, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna pay, we're gonna pay our taxes, we're gonna give you what, you do, what you're due, we're gonna fight on your behalf when someone invades. And then the higher king would make promises to the vassal king. He would say, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to look out for your best interests. But what often happened in the power politics of the day, right, is that 
the under king would betray the king that was above him and would make an alliance with someone else. And what that, what that higher king was obligated to do was to come and to restore order, to bring his kingdom back. What he had to do was to reject the king that he had put in place and put someone else in that person's place, someone who would be faithful uh, to the stipulations of the covenant. So what Adam and Eve expect then after they violated the covenant is that God is gonna come to them so that he can reject them. That's what they deserve because of their violation of the covenant. But that's not what God does. He comes to them with a question. Where are you? And Adam and Eve, right, they've, they've hidden themselves from God. And something that, that I think is important in helping us understand the context of this story is uh, in verse eight, okay? It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And I, this verse has been uh, enigmatic for translators across centuries. It's notoriously difficult to translate because the image, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense in the way that it's written in the original language, this idea of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and the woman hiding themselves. And so uh, I wanna offer you what I think is a a better translation of this and I will just tell you, it is not because I am a Hebrew expert, okay? This is from uh, other people who are way smarter than me. But what they would say is that uh, You'll notice in verse eight where it talks about the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. If you're following along in the ESV, there's a footnote in your Bible and it says that this word cool can also be translated as wind. So the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But that word day, the Hebrew word yom, okay, can also be translated storm. This could be we they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the storm. And that word for walking can be a flashing back and forth. They heard the sound of the Lord God flashing back and forth in the wind of the storm. You're like, well, this seems like a very different picture than what we have here. What's going on, right? Okay, don't freak out. <laughs> kind of freaked me out the first time I heard it. But uh, this idea of the, it kind of hinges on the translation of this word for day, okay? And it's fairly recent that we've discovered some other documents that would point us to the fact that there's another word to use this word for day, that it can actually be storm, it can be both. And what I want you to see is this doesn't totally like radically change the story of the Bible, it doesn't totally change the the picture of the text, but what it does do is help us maybe understand this text and fit it better in the context of the Old Testament. Because what we know is that when theophanies happen, okay, the word theophany is when God appears to his people, that often in the Old Testament, when God appears to his people, he appears to them in storm, right? Think about Mount Sinai. When the people of Israel are gathered around the mountain of God, God appears there in a storm. Or when God is leading his people out of Egypt, he leads them in a, in a fiery and a cloudy pillar. He leads them from this place of storm. So what we see here, I, I think in Genesis 3.8, is that God is coming to Adam and Eve in all of his glory and awesomeness and majesty. And before the fall, that is how Adam and Eve would have experienced God, not as like a friendly grandfather, but they would have experienced God in his glory because that's who God is. He's full of glory. But before the fall, the way that would have affected Adam and Eve is that it would have drawn them to God in worship and in awe. 
that the fear of God would have been because they recognized that God was the creator and that they were a creation. And that wouldn't have created distance, but it would have drawn them toward God. That there would be a freedom and a joy in that kind of worship. But instead, after sin enters the picture, that when the glory and the awesomeness, the majesty of God descends, that what Adam and Eve do is they hide. Why do they hide? It's because what sin has introduced into their lives is a sense of unworthiness before God. That what sin has introduced into their lives is a sense of unworthiness before God. And what that unworthiness does in them is that it makes them afraid of God. It makes God distant. It's opened up a relational chasm. And what we see is the fruit of shame in their lives. That their sense of unworthiness, it makes them want to hide and withdraw from God. They're anticipating their rejection. And instead, God meets them there in all of his, in all of his awesomeness, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. He meets them with a question. And the question is, where are you? God doesn't reject them. He comes to them. That they want to hide their unworthiness from God, and God comes to them and wants to expose that unworthiness. The Adam and Eve, they're living in this, in this world that's now been marked by sin the way that uh, kids who are playing hide-and-seek often like to hide. Have you ever played hide-and-seek with a child? Right? What do they like to do? Come find me, right? And the instinct of the child is to cover their eyes and to say, well, if I can't see me, then you can't see me. That's how Adam and Eve are living here, right? If, I'm, if I can hide myself from God, if I can hide myself from myself, then God won't be able to see me either. And friends, I will tell you, I have a lot of strategies for hiding from myself in my own life. Don't you? all of the distractions that I have in my life. All the entertainment, all the ways I medicate myself to avoid myself. We all have those things. That our instinct, when we encounter the shame or the unworthiness that we sense in our own lives, is to cover our own eyes to it. And to hope that in hiding from ourselves or in hiding it from other people that we're hiding it from God. But God, in his great love, in his mercy, comes to us and he asks us to uncover our eyes to, to see the reality of where we actually are. Where are you? I want us to hear that question for ourselves this morning. Where are you? Do you know where you are? It can be a very hard and challenging, a scary thing to actually admit to ourselves uh, where we are in our own lives, right? To admit the fear that so readily bears down upon us. To admit the shame that we're so busy trying to hide from ourselves and from other people. That often what we push down is the, is the pain in our lives because of the hurt that we have to engage in when we admit that it's there. 
the shame that we feel when we see our own limits or when we have to see our own sin? Where are you? Maybe it's that you're apathetic about life. Apathetic about your spiritual life, about the things of God in general. That the monotony and boredom that is in your life is a thing that you are trying to hide yourself from. The lack of joy. Maybe it feels like your life has gone off the rails. Maybe that happened during COVID. Maybe it happened after COVID. And actually, it would be possible that even here that we would show up and our goal here in this place with these people would be uh, to push those things down. That this would be the last place, that the church would be the last place we would want anyone to know about what we were thinking about or what was happening to us as we drove into the parking lot this morning. Where are you? Because the places that we are most desperate to avoid are the places where God is most desperate to meet with us. God is already there because he's with us in the places of our great need. He's with us where we actually are. And the question, where are you, is an invitation. Will you uncover your eyes and let God be with you in the place where you actually are? It's God in his grace that he would call us out of our hiding, that he would want to expose us. And we see that in Adam and Eve because what he does for Adam and Eve is that he exposes them in the place of their greatest need at the place of the root of their greatest need, which is the sin that has made them unworthy before God. We see this kind of in these next questions that play out after the question, where are you? Adam's response to God is, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. And God presses in further. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Does God know the answer to that question? Yes. But he's drawing Adam out, right? He's pointing Adam to the place of his greatest need. Adam says, classic avoiding, the woman who you gave to be with me. Yikes. That's what sin does. We blame, we avoid, right? And it's not my problem, it's your problem. It's the woman's problem. But then then he's willing to admit the heart here. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And that's when God turns to Eve. And he said to the woman, what is this you've done? Woman's response, same. Well, the serpent deceived me. But then what does she say? And I ate. Oh, now the truth comes out. That what God has done with Adam and Eve is he's pushed them to the point of acknowledging the place of their greatest need, which is the place of their sin. That our sin is the wellspring of this, our sense of unworthiness and shame before God. And friends, our shame, our unworthiness is not an emotional problem. Or I should say this, it's not only an emotional problem. It's not only an intellectual problem. It's an ontological problem. It's a problem with our being. And God has come for us in that place of our unworthiness because he desires to address it. So let's talk about that. 
So God exposes our great need for him through, through his questions, right? But God in his grace in exposing our need does that because he delights in addressing it. And we see that in the curses, in the covenant, and in the covering that God offers at the end of this passage. So we see starting in verse 14, God goes through this list and he deals kind of in order of the people and the way that they appear in the story. So first he deals with the serpent, then with the woman, and then with Adam. And what he, what he tells to them are the consequences of, the, of sin. But, but what is so easy to miss when God is talking to Adam and Eve about the consequences of their sin is that he's also telling them that there's a continuation of his promise, right? Because if you think about the call that God gave Adam and Eve, he gave them the call to, to be fruitful and to multiply in the world. He gave them the call to work, to have dominion in the earth, to subdue it, these glorious callings. And what God does not do, he does not reject Adam and Eve. He doesn't revoke their calling, but he talks about the way that sin has affected their calling. And the grace in that is that God has not rejected them. Yes, there will be pain in childbearing, right, in this multiplying in the earth, but that's still gonna happen. God has not turned his back on his people. Yes, there will be difficulty and toil in our work that God has called us to as part of our calling, but God has not turned his back on his people. But in fact, God makes another covenant right here in the midst of all of these consequences. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity, this is him talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And guys, that's a, that's a covenant, that's a promise. And what God is promising in those verses is that ultimately there will be a victory over the curse. That ultimately the enemy of God's people will be put down and they'll be able to live in the freedom of who they were created to be. And God is promising Adam and Eve, I'm gonna work out that story. And then, and this is why we read so much of this because this last verse is important in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. That what God does is he covers his people. Right, Adam and Eve, it says earlier that they had sown for themselves coverings of fig leaves, which uh, are not very good coverings. That's the moral of the story, right? It's like a sixth grade home ec class. Not gonna work very well. Good effort, I guess. God says, no, I love you so much, I'm gonna cover you. Nakedness was a, hu a point of huge shame in the ancient Near East. So when, when, the, when the people who first heard this story were hearing it, they would have known and connected viscerally with this idea of nakedness and being uncovered and the shame of that. And what God says to Adam and Eve is, you don't have to cover your shame, I will cover your shame. But for God covering their shame, there's a cost because he covers them with, with skin, which means it comes from an animal who had to lose its life so that Adam and Eve could be covered. So what we see in these curses and in the covenant and in the covering, it's like a giant flash. It's like when you're driving to Chattanooga and you see all those Sea Rock City signs, okay? They're all pointing you to something. This is like the very beginning of that drive when you see the first Sea Rock City sign, okay? Except it's like lit up on a billboard with bright flashing lights. It's not just on the roof of a barn. And what these signs are doing, who are they pointing us to? To Jesus, right? right here in the beginning of the scriptures, in this ancient text that people were hearing and reading before Jesus ever walked on the earth, God is telling his people, no, one is gonna come and you gotta look out for him because he's gonna reverse the curse. He's gonna be a fulfillment of my covenant and he's gonna cover you. 
And that's what we see in Jesus, that he became a curse for us. He walked in our, our curse-covered world. He bore all of the weight of that. He knew what that was like. He walked in all of these things. And yet he took the curse upon himself when he went to the cross. And when he did that, it was as if Satan had, had nipped at his heels. But what he did in the resurrection is that he trampled on the serpent's head. And that what he accomplished was our covering. That what we are covered by because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is we are covered by his righteousness. We wear it now. So that when God the Father looks at you, God the Father does not see your unworthiness. That's been cast as far as the east is from the west. That what he sees is the righteousness of his son. We call that in theological terms, double imputation. Okay? Christ has taken your sin upon himself and he has given you his righteousness. And it's not an illusion. It's true about you. It's true about you. That you have been made worthy because God loves you. Your unworthiness has been covered. You have been made worthy because of and through the love of Jesus. And what that does is that frees us to answer the question, well, it does a lot, well, it does a lot of things, okay? I'm just gonna talk about one of the things it does. It frees us to answer the question, where are you, with brutal honesty. It doesn't just free us to do that, it calls us to do that. calls us to answer the question, where are you, with brutal honesty. Where are you? Maybe you've got sin in your life that you are hiding. That you're afraid that if anybody in this room actually knew what was true about me, they would reject me. So maybe what you're doing is spending a ton of your time and effort hiding those things from yourself and from other people, thinking that you can hide them from God. And friends, that is not true. God sees them. But he's come to you in grace because he loves you. And so the invitation is, would you come out of hiding with those things? Would you acknowledge them to yourself? Would you be willing to acknowledge that sin to God? And I will tell you that uh, it doesn't stop there. Because if we're gonna be honest about the sin in our lives, what we have to do, and scripture is clear about this, we've gotta acknowledge it with each other. That the call to come out of hiding is a call to come into this community and speak your sin out loud to somebody else because there is no way that you are gonna fully experience the depth of what it means for Jesus to cover your sin until you have another enfleshed human being who is willing to look at you and can look at you and say, Jesus has covered that and I'm gonna walk with you in that. So the invitation here is that we would answer the question, where are you with ourselves? And that we would bring other people into the answer to that question. And just for the record, if someone gives you the gift uh, of hearing those things, then I wanna encourage you, honor that for the gift that it is. That's an opportunity not for you to shift into fixing mode, but to hear them and to love them with the love of Jesus that has come after them and brought them to that place. But you also need to know that someone sharing that kind of, um, 
sharing that with you, it doesn't bind you into secrecy, okay? That if, if someone brings something to you that's really heavy and hard to carry, what I'm, what I'm not encouraging is that you would go gossip about that to somebody else. But that if you need help knowing how to carry this with your friend, that's an okay thing to ask for too. Is you can ask for help in carrying someone else's answer to the question, where are you? Where are you? And this, this passage also raises the question, are you, with the where are you is, are you, are you running toward God or are you running away from him? Whether it's your sin, your fear, your anxiety, your doubts, your depression, whatever it is, your sense of unworthiness for whatever you have done or for whatever has been done to you, where are you taking that? Where are you with those things? Are you taking them toward the Lord or are you running away from him? And a good way to know the answer to that question is, uh, are you running away from yourself in those things or are you embracing, are you running to yourself in those things? Because if you're running away from them yourself, there's no way that you're also running toward the Lord. Running toward the Lord is running in the same direction as running toward yourself. Because what God is doing when he asks us the question, where are you, is he's inviting us to engage in reality, in where we actually are, because that's where he wants to meet us. And maybe when you hear the question, uh, where are you? The question you're asking back to God is, well, where are you? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you're asking that because uh, you have no familiarity with the things of church, with the Lord. And you're kind of exploring this stuff for the first time. So your question is, God, where are you? Maybe there's a lot of pain in your life and you've heard these things that are true. You've heard the gospel for a long time, but in your pain, you're wondering, are any of these things actually true? And you're asking God, where are you? I think sometimes when we are asking that question, where are you? Back to God. It's an intellectual way of doing this. that our question to God of where are you can be our own way of hiding from God. Because like we've been talking about, the promise of the scriptures is that God is with us. He's come to us most fully in the person and the work of Jesus Christ as it's taught and recorded here in the scriptures. He's come to us, he's with us, he's present with us. There's a passage in a guy, uh, in a guy's book, his name is Augustine. He's dead. He lived in like the fourth century, so it's a long time ago. But he has some helpful things to say to us on this topic. And this is what he says in this book called The Confessions. He's, he's talking to God, he's praying to God, and he says, you were there before me, but I had gone away from myself and I couldn't even find myself, much less you. You were there before me, but I had gone away from myself and I couldn't even find myself, much less you. So if you are in the place this morning of asking God, where are you? What I want to remind you is that God is with you. 
even in the pain, even in the questions. And the invitation is that you would uncover your eyes and that you would let God be with you in those things. And that, what, and that what we find when we are willing to answer the question honestly of where we are is a God who is with us right where we are. That God who has come to us first full of grace and love and mercy who delights to meet us because he rejoices over us with singing. Again, we have the, f- the freedom and the confidence to come into his presence and to answer that question because we know what we're gonna find. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we just confess that we are a people who love to hide. Lord, that in our fear and that in our shame, uh, we hide from ourselves, we hide from other people. Lord, we hide from you. God, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you for the fact that in your... uh, in your glory, in your splendor, in your majesty, Jesus, that you have chosen uh, to cross the gap and to come toward us in your great love and mercy. Because you delight in us, because you rejoice over us in singing. And so, Lord, we ask that even as we sing these next songs, that you, uh, that you would guide us in answering that question of where we are. And that as you open us up to the reality of where we are, the desperate state of our need for you, Jesus, that you would also uh, and you would meet with us, and we trust you to do that. You'd be bringing your love uh, and healing, grace and mercy uh, to the places that we are right now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.